Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sakas, and I pray that you're having a great summer so far. All right, well, today, welcome back my good friend, Father Josh Johnson, to talk about his new book, On Earth As It Is in Heaven, Restoring God's Vision of Race and Discipleship. We have a wonderful conversation about the importance of seeing race and ethnicity primarily through the lens of the gospel and evangelization, as this is the great commission of Jesus as articulated at the end of Matthew's gospel. We talk about Jesus' desire for all to be invited to the heavenly banquet and how the church has evangelized to various nations throughout our history. Father Josh shares modern stories of leaders who have taken practical steps forward, areas that we still need to grow in, and ways that we can increase cultural representation in our parishes and ministry events, and how we can rethink our politics in light of the gospel. When the show is done, please leave a rating, write a review, or share it on the socials. All right, everybody, let's get into this conversation with Father Josh Johnson. Father Josh Johnson, man, welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast. Always a gift to have you on the show. What's happening? <laughs> what are we doing a show together, man? Let's just, you know, let's stop this, this, this flirting and let's make this happen. So. Hey, man. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> All right, bro. Well, listen, man, I want to commend you on the book, uh, On Heaven As It Is in Earth. Um, excuse me, on, this shows you what time it is in the morning. <laughs> it shows you, shows you how I haven't had my coffee yet, see where we're at. So I'm let's, let's my rewind. Coffee right now. What time is it over there? It's still nine o'clock in the morning. You oh, okay. Know, it's, oh, it's, we're it's, central. We're, okay. We're both central. Yeah, yeah. So let, let me rewind that for a second. I want to commend you. <laughs> I promise we're going to have a serious conversation. Back it up, point, back so. it up, back it up. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. like my mama taught me. <laughs> I want to commend you on the book, On Earth As It Is In Heaven, Restoring God's Vision of Race and Discipleship, uh, published by Ascension Press. Um, you know, this is a topic that I know you and I have spoken about many, many times, and uh, something that I know, even before 2020, is something that you've been wanting to talk about and had had, had wanted to write this book for, for a long time. Um, but the events of 2020 and since, you know, has brought this um, reckoning, I guess, or awareness or understanding of, of, of racism uh, in our country. And I think the question that you're asking specifically is, is, is a way of being able to say, okay, how do we talk about this? Um, and why is it important for Catholics to, to, to think about this and how to think about these issues as Catholics? Oh, yeah. Um, and so, um, so, yeah, I'm just going to let you go, man. You know, like just what I, what I, before that, I really, just, again, I'm going to commend you. I mean, there's a lot of great stories that you share in this book, a lot of personal testimonies of experiences, the things that, you know, even I truthfully am flabbergasted. I'm like, man, this, this stuff still happens, you know, in oh, 2022. Yeah. And, uh, and you hear this stuff and you think it's just that all this stuff happened back in the sixties and seventies and it's, and it's not, it's still, still very present. Um, so, so just want to commend you, you know, for, for sharing your thoughts and your heart and, uh, and writing about all of us. So where do you want to begin? <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> well, like, let's begin with another prayer. Uh, let's do it. And I, I say this because I've been talking about, uh, racism and discipleship uh discipleship my whole life but racism particularly for at least since 2000 and probably uh 15 and uh traveling the nation talking about it to different dioceses and religious orders and seminaries uh to parishes and schools and uh, at conferences and retreats and i find that um sometimes when i talk about this topic sometimes people might feel accused or they might feel discouraged or condemned even if I'm not accusing them or discouraging them or condemning them. And so I got with the exorcist uh, for our diocese and we wrote a prayer. And ever since we wrote this prayer, I began to pray this whenever I would speak. And 
no more accusations were being felt and no more condemnation, no more discouragement. I was like, man, like, wow, there really must be like a demonic presence, a demonic stronghold whenever we're having these conversations. And so I'm going to go ahead and recite, recite a prayer that I wrote with the exorcists for our diocese, just so that our audience today, as you and I have this dialogue, as we have this conversation about what Jesus wants, about what God desires um, for, for his church on earth to do. Uh, that, that no one will listen to the voice of the accuser, uh, the father of lies, that no one will be tempted to, to be discouraged or, or feel condemned uh, as the Lord invites them to fulfill the demands of discipleship, which are costly and which are hard to do, uh, but the fruit of which is supernatural. So let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, in your name and through your power, I ask that you pour forth your precious blood over us so that no demonic forces or strongholds may accuse, condemn, confuse, or discourage us with their lies. I ask that you bind any spirits of division, hatred, violence, indifference, and racism. Blessed Mother Mary, most holy, wrap us in your mantle of love. Saint Joseph, terror of demons, surround us with your cloak of protection. St. Michael the Archangel, guard us with your shield so that we may remain fixed on the gaze of our Heavenly Father who sees us, who knows us, who delights in us, who loves us, and who calls us by name to console the heart of Jesus by working for reformation and reconciliation in the racially divided body of Christ. Legions of angels under the command of the Blessed Virgin Mary intercede for us so that we may be inspired and encouraged to imitate the apostles who received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and went out to make disciples of all nations, races, tribes, and tongues. All you saints of heaven, plead before the throne of God for us, our family, our loved ones, and every member in the geographical boundaries of our parish so that we may be protected from the snares of the enemy as we pray fast and work together to heal the racial divide in the United States of America. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So where do I want to start, Mario? I think I want to start with, with Jesus, with, with God, because why are we investing so much time and energy into this work of racial reconciliation? Uh, it's because this is what Jesus Christ wants. Uh, so I had my conversion back in 2004. Yesterday was actually my anniversary of the day I fell in love with Jesus at Steubenville South. It was June 26, 2004. So yesterday- Congratulations. 18 awesome. years. Of the wow. day I fell in love with Jesus wow. uh, during Eucharistic awesome. adoration. And after I fell in love with Christ in adoration, I began to visit him every day uh, in the adoration chapel at one of our local parishes, Our Lady of Mercy in the Diocese of Baton Rouge. And I would sit with him and I would look at him and I would read scripture. And man, God just fulfilled me. He fulfilled the deepest desires of my heart. He consoled me. He quenched that thirst that you and I both have. We all have this infinite ache in our hearts and there's no finite person, place, or thing that can ever fulfill us. Only an infinite God can. And the infinite God did. He did. And he fulfilled me in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. So because I was fulfilled in Christ Jesus and my desires were fulfilled by our Lord, I began to ask the question, like, well, what can I do for God? Like, I want to fulfill your desires. God, do you even have desires? Like, I didn't know. I wasn't a theologian. And so the more time I spent with the scriptures, I was drawn to the Gospels, and in the Gospel of John, which is my favorite Gospel, and here's my speculative theology. This is this this is what might get me in trouble. I'm not getting in trouble about the race stuff. Like everything I say about race is in line with the church. But here's my speculative theology. Oh, I great. think Mary. 
Here's a heretic alert. Heterodoxy take. Heterodoxy. I think Mary, the mother of God, is the uh, the author of the Gospel of John. And I think John sat at her feet when he was in her home and he was writing down what she was saying because it's the Gospel of John is so different from the synoptics from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I could just imagine, I could image John sitting at the feet of Mary and her saying, okay, write this, my son. Because it's so mystical. The Gospel of John is so mystical and it's just different. So anyways, there it is. Go ahead and call me a heretic. But uh, so I think the Gospel of John was inspired by the Blessed Virgin Mary's wisdom and insights. And uh, but in John 17, man, Jesus prays the most beautiful prayer. And all throughout the Bible, Jesus prayed. He prayed in the morning. He prayed at noon. He prayed in the evening. He prayed at night. He prayed while standing up, while sitting down, while lying prostrate. He prayed in community. He prayed um, in solitude. He prayed rote prayers. He recited scriptures and psalms. He prayed spontaneous prayers. He sang when he prayed. Uh, he talked a lot. But he also listened a lot to the Father. He listened a lot to the Father, and, and he, he listened to the Father delight in him, and it's very beautiful. But one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is John 17 because in this passage, when he went away to pray, he actually gives us a glimpse of his conversation with the Father. Quite often when he goes away to pray with the Father, we don't know what he and the Father talked about. It says he prayed all night. So what did he say when he prayed? What did the father say? What did he hear? Well, in John 17, we actually have a glimpse of the dialogue. And in John 17, he's talking to his father, and he says, Father, I desire that all may be one. Like, he wants unity in the body of Christ. Like, that's what Jesus Christ desires. He even says the word desire, I desire. So he has desires. And what does he desire? He desires that all of us may be one. So how do we how do we fulfill this desire from Jesus? Like what? Because if we love God, it's not just about what, what God can do for me. So many times we could treat God as like, oh man, God does so much for me, and, and He does. But like, what am I doing for God? Well, I can fulfill His desires. I know what He desires now. I know what He longs for. I know what He thirsts for. He thirsts for unity. So how do I do this? Well, before He ascended into heaven, um, He He gave us the way. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, He said, "Go out." and make disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. And the word nations in the Greek is ethnos, which means ethnicities. And so the very last thing that Jesus Christ said before he went to heaven was go make disciples of all ethnicities. I think it's important that we like listen to the last words of Jesus before he went to heaven. And so he says, go make disciples of all ethnicities. And the apostles, uh, they gathered together with Mary, the mother of God, and with other women and other, other disciples. And for nine days, they prayed. They prayed. This was the very first mandate that Jesus Christ gave to the apostles at the Last Supper. Before he told them to teach, preach, and baptize, and heal and deliver, he told them to sit with me, watch with me, and pray in the garden. And they didn't do that then. But now they're doing it. Now they are being obedient to the very first mandate that he gave to them, which is to sit, watch, and pray. And there they're gathered in prayer with Mary, the mother of God, and the women and the other disciples, and after nine days of prayer, the Holy Spirit comes down. And it's really important that we pay attention to this because uh, it's, the Holy Spirit is like the president, right? Whenever, I mean, he's more than the president. That's a terrible analogy. But the Holy Spirit and the president, uh, here, here's where we can like see the, uh, where I'm trying to make the point. You always pay attention to the first three months of a president whenever he's in office or she's in office. Why? Because it kind of gives you the, the trajectory of where they're going to go over the next four years. Right. So the Holy Spirit comes down over the apostles and the disciples. And what's the very first thing that he did with them? 
did did uh, he console them or comfort them? No, he he's the consoler, he's the comforter, but that ain't what he did. Um, did they uh, go out and uh, whatever? Like the very first thing that they did was they went out. They broke out of their little holy huddle that they were in for nine days. But they they had a little small group Bible says they were in where they all knew Jesus and they all loved Jesus. They had a personal relationship with Jesus and they were all happy with each other and Jesus. And then Holy Spirit comes. He's like, get out yeah. and do what Jesus said. And the very first thing they did was they went out to people from Africa and Asia and Europe and Acts chapter two, and they spoke their languages. That's enculturation right there. Like they learned their languages and they spoke their languages and thousands of people uh, accepted Christ into their life and were baptized um, and became disciples. And the fruit of, of this work uh, was, was realized by John who had a vision of heaven. Like he's one of the few mystics that we can actually uh, fully assent to what he wrote about heaven. There's always mystics who say, I saw heaven, or I saw purgatory, or I saw hell. Did they? We don't know because they could be lying or they could be wrong or whatever. But his writing about heavens in the Bible, the Bible's infallible, inspired and errant word of God. And while he was an old man on the island of Patmos, God gave him a glimpse of heaven. And when he saw heaven, he saw people of every race, of every nation, of every tribe, and of every tongue worshiping God together. So beautiful. And so what he saw in heaven is what, what God wants for us to experience on earth. Uh, where is heaven and earth, where do they come together? The Holy Sacrifice, the mass. So now let's look at our masses. Certainly we have saints from every na race, nation, tribe, and tongue, and all these angels who are with us who we can't see. But it's important that we look at the geographical boundaries of our parish communities and we examine, like, what are the races that are present here and what ethnicities are present here and what are the, the, the socioeconomic groups that are present here and the ages and the genders and all that? Who are the people who live here? And once I examine the diversity of my geographical boundaries, if, if there's diversity there, then I need to look at my church and say, okay, does my church look like my community that the church is in? And if it doesn't, then that's a big problem, huge, huge problem because my church does not look like heaven. And that's the point. The goal is we wanna cultivate unity in prayer and in worship. And when we're unified in prayer and in worship, we'll be able to go out and transform all these the social injustices that continue to cultivate division in our land and then therefore in our church. And so we gotta to come together. And so the whole book is ultimately, it's a guide on how we can do that well, like uh, where the church is really messed up at with this. Um, and where the church has done a, an okay job, where the church has done a good job, and what the church can do and going forward in the future so that we can be about the business of consoling the heart of Jesus and bringing everyone together. Everyone deserves an opportunity um, to be in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. Everyone deserves an opportunity to hear the voice of God in the Bible. Um, everyone should be invited to the sacramental life of the church that Jesus Christ founded. And when we all are drawn together in prayer with Christ, then he will inspire us together and he will give us the wisdom and the gifts and the charisms uh, to to go out and to cultivate what St. Pope Paul VI and St. John Paul II called a civilization of love. Um, and our earth will look a little bit more like heaven. Praise the Lord. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. That's a great place to start. I mean, can't, can't argue with the theology of it. You know, when you say that the, the goal not the goal, the vision of heaven, the goal of Christ's salvific mission is that all may be saved. 
and that mm-hmm. there may be unity for all. Now, obviously, yeah. we're not getting into any debates about. Well, I mean, does everybody accept that? I mean, so now we're, we're obviously we're not going to we're, we're not talking about universal salvation. You know, that's, that's there not we hope. <laughs> there we hope exactly. That's not where we're going. But well, at we least we could in, go there because in the book of Jude, it makes it pretty clear that somebody's in hell. That's all I'm saying. That's right. Yeah. No. No. I mean, and people in in people all have freedom. You know, yeah. and at the end of the day, in the decisions to choose or not choose, you know, the the the, the gospel um, or or the Holy Spirit is is a is a different conversation, but. The vision, nonetheless, of heaven is that that all ethnicities, all nations, all cultures, all t- all tribes are represented, which also means all times, and mm-hmm. and 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 us as the beneficiaries of that. Two thousand years later, that it wasn't that the opportunities for heaven were just closed to the, the apostles, you know, that and the first century, you know, right after Jesus, but that the mission continues and still, you know, even to this day that we 2000 years later are still the beneficiaries of that openness, uh, that the gates of heaven are open to us as well, because obviously culturally we're very different now than, than they were 2000 years ago. And so recognizing that it's open to all. Um, and then that's the mission. And that, you know, as you said, that once the Holy spirit came, I mean, there's a lot of fear obviously in those first nine days and it's incredible how anxiety prevents us from being able to act and how anxiety yeah. prevents us from being able to, to see clearly, you know, when our fear overcomes us and we don't feel safe, we don't have the capacity, we lose objectivity. And the Holy Spirit had to come to descend upon the, 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 the 12 or the 11, I guess, at that point, you know, in Mary. And to say that, like, it's, it's, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to do what, what the Lord's asking us to. And then, of course, we get that beautiful vision of, of Pentecost, and, which is the answer to Babel, you know, where, where you start seeing now this, this desire for unity um, is manifesting and is being present. And, and that that's what, that's what the goal is. And so the early evangelizers of the church and the first wave evangelization that went into China, went into Africa, went into Europe, went throughout, you know, Asia, um, the, the second wave evangelization that came into the new world as well, that came to the, to the, the Indian people here in, in, in America, the native Americans here in America, um, to evangelize and to bring the gospel, to bring the good news, you know, to all so that all might, all might be saved, all might be, all might have the opportunity to receive, you know, the message of Jesus Christ. And so like the, the, the mission's there and the mission has been lived out. And so I'm wondering, you know, like you said, that there's, there's places where the church has done a good job um, with, with this issue and there's places where the church hasn't. Um, and so where would you say are places that the church has done a good job and then where are the places where you say that the church hasn't? Yeah, so the first one is the Mary, the mother of God, right? Uh, probably one of the best evangelists in the history of the church. When she <laughs> appears all over the world, she appears in Cabejo, Africa. She appeared in Nikita, in Lourdes, in, uh, in Fatima. She appeared in Guadalupe. Whenever our Blessed Mother appears, uh, she typically she takes on the culture of the people that she is uh, encountering and she reverences that which is good in their culture and she speaks to the people in a way that they can understand so she uh, she looked white when she appeared in Lourdes and she looked black when she appeared in Cabello and she looked as an indigenous woman when she appeared in Guadalupe and she dressed as an indigenous woman in, in Guadalupe as well so that way the people were able to uh, to listen to her St. Maximilian Kobe whenever he was making disciples in in Asia uh, he grew a long beard uh, like because he knew that uh, the people would respect the wisdom of a man with a beard even though uh, that wasn't typical Mother Teresa of Calcutta right she took on the dress of the people in in India 
Um, and of course, St. Isaac Jogues and St. John of Brebeuf, uh, when they came to uh, the continent of North America, they, they spent time engaging a community that was radically different from them and the indigenous people. And they took time to learn their language and learn their culture uh, and uh, invest in it. And then from being within this new culture that was so different from what they were used to, they were able to introduce the gospel and the sacraments. And the fruit of that was supernatural. You have the first Native American saint, Saint Katir Tikakwitha. And so there's been many places throughout our, our history as a church where we've done this really well. In modern times, uh, it's been done really well. I'll give you uh, three quick stories of yeah. where it's been done well, and then I'll, I'll go into uh, where it's not been done so well. Uh, and so. Three quick stories. I'll give you a bishop. I'll give you. Uh, I'll give you a bishop. I'll give you a, a lay woman, and uh, who is in education. And then I'll give you lay women who uh, are, are are moms, uh, stay-at-home moms. So uh, a bishop, Archbishop Hughes, one of my heroes. You know him well. I, I know him well. We love him. Uh, at Notre Dame Seminary, he wakes up every day what 3 a.m. and spends like three holy hours with Jesus before we even you know get to the first holy hour. And uh, him and Father Kelly, his best friend. But Archbishop Hughes was the Archbishop of New Orleans for a number of years, and in he also swims or rides or bike or runs every single day. I mean, the guy's like he's ninety. Like, how old he's like, is he? Yeah, right? he's got to be he's got to be close to ninety, if not ninety. I know, now. man. Yeah. He's in so much better shape than both of us, right? Uh, but <laughs> well, so I don't know about both of us, but uh, but uh, but I'll let you. At least know. at least me. Okay, fine. You run too, whatever. Uh, wow. Okay, you just went there taking shots, 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 shots. Um, so Archbishop Hughes, uh, he began to recognize that a lot of the black Catholics in the archdiocese were leaving the Catholic Church. Now, Louisiana has the most black Catholics in the United States of America. And so instead of taking on a posture of pride and saying, I know why they're leaving, right? I can tell you why they're leaving. He took on his posture of uh, profound humility, and he invited them to sit at the table with him, a number of them, because not all black people are the same. Um, and he had all these black people, young and old, sitting at the table with him, and he asked them, like, what's going on in my diocese that I don't know about? Like, why are so many... African Americans leaving the Catholic Church in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, and through listening to them, he discovered that uh, at that time the Metairie Country Club um, had a a practice, which is an unwritten rule uh, that Black people could not be members. And this again was in the 70s, it was in the 80s, it was in the 90s, it was the 2000s. <laughs> and so, in the 21st century, there is a racist practice that is happening in his land. And so uh, they said, our parishes are hosting events at the Metairie Country Club. Our, par our, our knights are doing this, our pastors are doing this, our DREs are doing this, and they know that we can't be members there. And so we've asked, I mean, we've been a part of these parishes for years. Uh, we've been a part of these parishes. We tie to these parishes. We're in ministry in these parishes. We, our kids have gone to, to schools at these parishes. All we're asking is that they stop hosting events for the church and the school at a place that has discri racial discrimination as a practice still. Now, Archbishop Hughes had no idea about this practice, uh, and because so, he ha had many events there too, he had no idea. So when he found out, he first reached out to the country club and asked them to change their practice. They said no. So he did a boss move, and he wrote a pastor a letter against racism called Racial Harmony. And uh, in this letter that was distributed throughout the entire archdiocese, he said that there are no Catholic institutions, hospitals, schools, churches, parishes, programs, anything, organizations in his diocese that can have any events at any place that does not allow diverse membership. When he did this, some Catholics were convicted. 
And because some Catholics, a lot of them already knew this practice. They, they didn't care, right? Because their people told them. But some Catholics became convicted and they began to pull their money from the country club. When they pulled their money and their membership, the country club changed their practice and began to um, invite African-Americans to join. Um, and now African-American Catholics, many of them are members uh, in this day and age of the country club. And so those black Catholics felt heard and seen and loved by their archbishop, by their shepherd. Um, and and it, again, it brought healing because he addressed something that was happening in the secular world, but affecting the church because the people in the church live in the secular world. And so that's, that's, that's a beautiful example of, of someone, again, bringing the church in, in transforming society. This happened at St. Michael's High School as well in Baton Rouge with uh, the principal, Miss Ellen Lee. Um, at her school, a student wrote a uh, paper during Black History Month about why she hated African Americans and why she, she thought that black people were all thugs and gangsters and hood rats or whatever. And, that, and she even said, and, and even Jesus doesn't care about black people. They're not even in the Bible. I don't know why, where she got that from, uh, but that's what she believed. Um, she, she didn't read about the Ethiopian eunuch. I was just about Simon to say, of, I don't think the Ethiopian eunuch was, uh, was white-skinned. Or Simon of Cyrene, uh, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so, uh, anyways... But, and of course, the guy, uh, Matthew, died in Africa. That's where he died mm -hmm. at, bringing the church there uh, to the Ethiopian queen. But, uh, so this paper, she writes, her friends take a picture of it, put it on social media. It goes viral, causes a lot of division in the school. Uh, and so the, the principal reached out to me and said, Father Josh, can you come? We don't know what to do. We don't know how to address this. And so I went to the school. And before I ever talk anywhere, I always ask God to give me the gifts of tongues. So I will only say the words he wants me to say. I ask for the audience to have the gift of interpretation of tongues so they will only hear what he wants me to hear. And as I was, before the Blessed Sacrament, they have a beautiful chapel at their school. By the way, if you're in Catholic education and your school doesn't have a chapel, um, shame on you. You should have one <laughs> because that's one of the gifts of it being a Catholic school is we're inviting Catholics and Protestants, whoever the students are, to be in the presence of Jesus. So they have a chapel at their school. I love that. And I'm praying before the Blessed Sacrament. And I look up and I notice the artwork. I love art. I'm a huge fan of artwork. And all the artwork in this chapel was everything that was holy was white, right? Jesus was white, blonde hair, blue eyes. Clearly, Jesus Christ was not European. Uh, Mary was white, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, St. Joseph was white, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, and then the only dark image in the entire chapel was of Satan, who looked like me. He looked like a biracial man who was being stepped on uh, by St. Michael, um, his knee to his neck. Uh, and so I was like, oh, man, this is... Uh, did they even notice how bad this looks? And at this particular school, uh, every class would go and visit the chapel at least once a week for like uh, 30 minutes or holy hour. So the student would have seen this weekly, white Jesus, white Mary, white Joseph, black Satan. Um, what is good and holy is white, what is bad is black. And uh, I was like, man, I wonder if they even noticed this. So uh, they then did a, like a very generic prayer of the, of the intercom. Uh, and then after that, I got up to go to the classroom and I noticed every statue throughout the school, more statues, white Jesus, white Mary, white Joseph, white St. Michael, black Satan. And again, I'm not anti-white Jesus, white Joseph, white Mary, because in the glorified body, Jesus can appear white, right? Again, when Mary appeared in Lourdes and in Fatima, she appeared white. When she appeared in Guadalupe, she appeared indigenous. When she appeared in Akita, she appeared Asian. When she appeared in Africa, she appeared black. So in the glorified body, uh, we can take on any appearance that we want. Uh, so Jesus obviously did this when he resurrected from the dead in his glorified body. The apostles and the disciples did not recognize him because he looks different. And so he can take on any appearance he wants to. So I'm not anti having that, but I do think it's, it's dangerous when that's the only image that we have in this school or the church has diverse groups of people of different ethnicities. But we're only representing one for, for that which is holy. So when I got to the class with all the 
teachers and faculty and administration, I invited them to a thought experiment and I said, imagine this school wasn't called St. Michael, but it was called St. Charles Luanga and the African Martyrs. And imagine that the majority of the students in this school were African American and the minority students were white. Imagine that all the teachers were black. And imagine that uh, the, the white students who come to this school, many of them aren't Catholic, but they, they know that Catholic schools are a place where you can you know, get a really good education. And so this is, this is a great opportunity to evangelize and to catechize and to sacramentalize, to form disciples of all nations. But when they come here, they see an image of God the Father in this beautiful oratory where they visit twice a week, once for Mass and once for Holy Hour. And the image of God the Father is an old African-American appearing man who has an afro. And then there's Jesus, who is a black man with dreadlocks. And then there's Mary, who's a black woman. And there's Joseph, another black man. And there's all these saints, Josephine Bakita and Martin de Porres and Charles Luanga and Moses the Ethiopian, uh, all these black saints everywhere. And even the angels are black. And angels don't have bodies, but they're depicted as black holy figures. And the only image in the entire oratory, the only image in the entire church or chapel is of a white Satan with blonde hair and blue eyes. And they're all throughout the school statues of black St. Michael stepping on white Satan. How do you think those white students would feel if their only representation was of that which is bad? Um, and I said, did you recognize that in your school, every image of holiness is white and every image of, of evil is black and brown? They didn't even recognize that. Um, and uh, I said, did you recognize that the prayer you recited over the intercom was generic? Why don't you pray against like racism? And why don't you pray for racial harmony and racial reconciliation? Like pray against the evil that's attacking your land right now. Um, I invited them to look around the classroom. I said, do you recognize that everyone I'm talking to right now is white, but yet your students aren't white? And that it's sometimes it can be very helpful to see um, a a principal, a vice principal, an administrator, or a teacher who is a person of color for children of color. So that way they can see I, I can be a teacher to, one day, I could be a principal one day. I said, I would encourage y'all to, to go out and to find qualified teachers of color for the future because you have black and brown students at your school, but you have no black and brown representation in the leadership of the school. And so as opportunities open up, as people retire, like, call the Catholic universities and ask them, do you have anybody who's available, um, a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is a person of color who might want to come here? Um, and then I finally invited them to look at their handbook, because in many handbook policies, there are uh, rules, uh, policies that are discriminatory. And so uh, even though uh, ra even though when the Civil Rights Act happened, uh, direct institutional racism came to an end, indirect racist policies continue to happen and practices. That's where you have this, the swimming pool clubs that are exclusively white. You have the fraternities at LSU that are exclusively white. You have uh, the country clubs around the country that are exclusively white because there are unwritten rules, but there's also policies, written rules, that continue to foster discrimination and keep people away from the sacraments. So I said, does your handbook policy have any rules against you know girls wearing braids? Because black girls in Africa and in Haiti and all over the, the globe, they wear braids. Why? Because their hair grows different than white hair. Um, and so uh, if, if they don't uh, braid their hair, then they have an option of permit, which could damage their hair. And many of them don't want to lose their hair, so they braid their hair. So anyways, they did have a policy in the, the handbook that said girls can't wear braids and girls are being suspended. And so the principal, what she did was she invited um, the African-American students and their moms and dads to the table. She asked him to read the hammock policy with her because she never noticed that policy. And when they showed her all the policies that were discriminatory, she rewrote them. 
and they were no longer being punished. Uh, that week, the campus minister got her budget and bought artwork of Mary from every different apparition and saints from all over the world, got an artist to come and repaint the statues of Satan and St. Michael. The principal began to pray uh, a prayer for racial harmony over the intercom. In that year, two teachers retired, and so she um, found two black professors um, who were qualified, and she offered them an opportunity to be teachers at the school. So all this transformation happened literally within a couple of weeks. So sometimes people are like, oh, man, this is so much. What can we really do? This was when they became aware, they literally acted and made a change. And the final one is a bunch of moms up in Phoenix, Arizona, who started a Bible study. Their school was half white, half Latino. And they started a Bible study, prayer group, intercessory prayer group for their kids. About 25 moms uh, started it. They met every Thursday at 11 o'clock a.m. The whole school um, was invited, all the parents, but only these 25 moms came at first. And after about a year of doing it and, like, growing in the Word, they became aware, like, hey, you know, the, the Bible makes it very clear that we're supposed to have people of all ethnicities, so why are we only a group of all-white moms when they're, are, half the school is Hispanic? So they uh, reached out to uh, the, the school leadership, and they began to put in the newsletter and the bulletin and emails and flyers that, that they wanted all the moms to come. And still, no Latina mothers came. So they hired a social psychologist to come to their school, and they asked her, hey, can you help us understand why these Latina moms won't come to our intercessory prayer group for our kids and our Bible study? And, and she said, well, when do y'all meet? And they said, well, Thursday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. And she said, well, what is it about Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. that you think prevents some of these moms from coming? And they're like, well, we don't know. And she said, how about this? How about y'all go to, like, the Spanish Mass for the next four months? And after you go to Spanish for four months, then call me back and we'll keep the conversation going. So five moms and their husbands and their kids of the original 25 moms began to go to the Spanish mass for like three or four months. After doing this, instead of calling the social psychologists back, they reached out to these women who they worshiped God with every Sunday at their church. Um, and they said, hey, look, you know, we've been coming to your church for the past four months. And we we're just wondering, you know, our kids go to the same school together. We have this Bible study prayer group. Why don't y'all want to come? We've been inviting y'all for over a year now. And some of the moms, like, we know about this, this, this prayer group. We've heard about it. We would love to come. We just can't come at that time. And they're like, oh, so you, you would come if we changed times. So like, yeah, we would love to. So they said, well, what time could you do it? They said, we could do Thursdays, but at 11 o'clock p.m. Because, like, we work all day. They said, okay, great. You know what? We're going to do it at 11 o'clock p.m. We're hosted in our, at our home, in our neighborhood. And the Latina mom's like, oh, like, we don't feel safe going to your neighborhood at night, right? Um, mm -hmm. Being women of color, um, we, we, we've heard stories about what happens to people sometimes when they walk in those neighbors at night, when they drive in those neighbors at night. Um, this, again, has happened to Bishop Edward Braxton, one of our few African-American bishops. Uh, he's been pulled over while driving in his... Uh, neighborhoods that were predominantly white as a bishop he's been put over by the police he's been uh even stopped while walking in some neighborhoods um in his diocese as a bishop he's been stopped and questioned what are you doing here and so this happens all the time so it wasn't safe for them and so i mean they also they also used the bus to to, to get around and so the the white mom's like well would one of y'all want to host it at your homes they said sure we would love to so they hosted in their homes, 11 o'clock, Thursday nights, all these like really nice cars are showing up in this predominantly Latina neighborhood every Thursday. So now the neighbors are talking like, what are they doing every Thursday night? They're like, oh, we have a Bible study prayer group for our kids. So some of the other women in the neighborhood were like, hey, we don't go to that school, but we have kids and we would love to pray for our kids too. Can we join? Hmm. So then other women came and joined this Bible study prayer group. Well, then this is going on for like months now. Well, other women in the neighborhood who 
don't speak good English. Like, well, we would want to come too, but we don't speak great English. So the, some of the, the, the white moms like, yeah, like I tell you what, we don't want to make the Latina moms work during Bible study prayer group. We will hire a translator for us. So that way we can like hear that, like have that person tell us what they're saying. After a while of having a translator, they're like, why are we hiring a translator when we can clearly um, learn Spanish by getting a tutor? So they began to learn Spanish. Now this Bible study is going on for years. They're not just meeting on Sundays for Mass or on Thursday nights at 11 o'clock p.m. for Bible study prayer group, but they're grabbing coffee together on Saturdays. They're going to Quinceañeras on Saturday evenings. They are uh, vacationing together. They're investing life with each other, with these women, these other moms. They become like family. And as trust is established, some of the Latina mothers began to open up to their white sisters in Christ about some of the ways that their government um, had, had laws that were actually hurting their community. And so the white moms and their husbands with the Hispanic women and their husbands began to collaborate together to actually change laws in this town that benefited everybody. And it all was the fruit of these moms just being inspired by the word of God and saying, you know what? Jesus made it very clear what we're supposed to do. And was it always comfortable? No. Was it exhausting at times? Um, certainly. I mean, these are late night Bible studies that they were hosting. It was out of their comfort zone. It was in a different neighborhood that maybe um, they weren't familiar with, but they did it because it's one of the demands of discipleship, one of the lies of Satan, Mario, that so many of us hear and listen to, uh, and, and Satan's the same, yesterday, today, and forever. In the book of Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the fruit of that tree. And what's the very first thing that Satan did is he, 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 he instilled doubt. Did God really say that you couldn't eat of the fruit of that tree? And that's the same thing that Satan does to us today. When we read the Word of God, the Word of God clearly says, and the Word of God is infallible. The Word of God is totally inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is without error. The Word of God is the voice of God for us. So the voice of God speaks to you and I today, and he says, go out and make disciples of all ethnicities. Again, because the word nations is Greek ethnos, English ethnicities. That's what the Word of God says. And the devil says to us this lie. Did God really say you need to go out to all ethnicities? No, no. God wants you to go out to some people. How about you go to people who look like you or who think like you, who are the same socioeconomic background, who come from the same race or the same ethnicity, the same culture, people who uh, speak the same language. God can't expect for you to, 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 to make disciples of all people. Just stick to people that you're comfortable with. If you go out to someone that's different, you might say the wrong thing. You might offend them. Mm -hmm. You you might be, you might get hurt. It might be dangerous. Uh, uh, Hello, the saints were martyred. I mean, all the apostles, <laughs> the apostles, Judas obviously committed suicide, and John, uh, he died a natural death. But the other apostles were all martyred for going out to other cultures, for going out to all nations. And, but they did it because it was for salvation of souls. So, yeah, it might be difficult, and, yeah, you might say the wrong thing, and, yeah, you might offend somebody. But at the end of the day, are you going to let your fears prevent you from fulfilling the demands of what Jesus Christ said? On my judgment day and on your judgment day, I believe God's going to, he's going to look at us and he's going to say, why didn't you invite me to your Bible study? That was like thriving. Why didn't you invite me to your RCA program? That was awesome. Why didn't you invite me to your adoration chapel? That was bearing so many vocations to the priesthood and religious life in your diocese. Why didn't you invite me to that parish mission when, when Dr. Mario came to present or when Father Champagne came to preach? Why didn't you invite me to that married couples retreat that saved so many marriages that were on the rocks? And we're going to say, but when did I see you and not invite you to a married couples retreat? Or when did I see you and not invite you to a parish mission or to the adoration chapel or to my 
a small group discipleship Bible study, our, our RCA program. When did I see you and not invite you, God? I invited so many people. Like I have a list of people that I discipled. Like I can name names of people that I uh, helped to become disciple makers, God. I equipped them with the tools to follow you and love you. What are you talking about, Jesus? And he's going to say, when you saw that person uh, who was of a different race, and you assumed, well, they might, they must not be Catholic, as if that means that they shouldn't be invited to the Catholic Church. When you saw that person that 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 was Latino, and you said, well, they might not speak English, and I don't want to waste my time or take the time to learn their language to invite them. When you saw that person who appeared to be poor, and you fed them food at the homeless shelter, but you never invited them to the sacraments. That's that's when you saw me, and that's when you didn't invite me. Right? And for that, you're held accountable because I said in the Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, make disciples of all ethnicities, and you said no. So, I'm pretty passionate about this. I, I can tell it, it's great, and I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I feel convicted, and, and truthfully, to be sincere, what I'm experiencing as you're saying is, is, is a sense of, you know, and I want to use this word appropriately because you know, I don't, I, I know, it, it is a sense of guilt that maybe I haven't done my job well enough, and. I know that that's the that word is right now. I think what makes this conversation the most difficult is that it's so charged politically. Oh yeah, and and we are so ingrained in certain lines, um, politically speaking, that that we fail to lose sight of of what the the gospel is calling us to do now. And and so I say guilt from my own sense that yeah, I mean I I haven't done as much as as I could possibly say. I mean, being Hispanic and, and growing up in in a, in in a culture and many cultures, I would say that that are my own. And I've reached out, and I do you know I do the best I can. Obviously, we've done our retreats and things together, you know, and we do the show and you know have these conversations. But still, recognizing that that there's always a lot of more work to be done, you know, when it comes to trying to um, grow in our understanding of 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 what harm of what racial harmony looks like. And I guess it's, you know, as I'm kind of thinking out loud here, you know, Father Josh, I just thank you so much for, for, for your words and your conviction, um, particularly trying to get to that point of, um, well, how do, sometimes I think we can feel that, well, because the missions have been done and because the, the, we now have established different churches, you know, so we have, and even sometimes we segregate ourselves among our, our, our worship. And I think the quote, one of the quotes that you, that you use is from Martin Luther King Jr. That says like, you know, Sunday morning service is the most racially segregated time in America. Yeah, totally. And, and there's a place in that where there's, there's an element of honoring culture and truth and saying, okay, well like, yeah, black bears should, should exist because culturally there's, there's an expression that, that we want to honor and we want to give them space for that. There's the Hispanic, there's a Latin, ma- the, the the Latino mass, the the Spanish mass, at many churches, you know, throughout our our uh, our, our country, uh, to give them the opportunity to be able to worship in their in their language and in their culture and in their people. But it does create almost this this sense of um, division. Still, where it's like, well, you know, they have their thing, we have our thing, they have their thing, they're being taken care of. And the question is, well, are they being taken care of? And even if they are being taken care of. Are, are we still doing what we can to make sure that we're sharing our resources as much as possible? And again, this isn't, this isn't to say, again, if we, when we, even when we say things like that, like people get on arms or like, well, that just sounds like socialism. It's like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not talking about this stuff politically. I, I believe in the free market capitalism. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative. I'm, I'm, I'm all of that. But, but the gospel encourages us repeatedly. The rich young man is to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. 
that we're supposed to be in communion with one another. And the way that we are communing with one another is to meet the needs of one another and to give to one another. The poor will always be with us. And that means ourselves too. And why? Why is that the case? Well, because we all have poverty. We all have places within ourselves that we are needy. We all have places within ourselves that we can't satisfy, where we can't um, you know, answer all the questions within our heart. We can't have all the desires of our hearts fulfilled. And so uh, our own neediness is our own poverty. And a reminder of our own neediness is a reminder that we need other people to take care of us, no matter how affluent we are. And so then the demands of 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 meeting others means that we have to be in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And, and to be in relationship, because only in relationship can you hear what the needs are and the experiences that you just shared, both of Archbishop Hughes and of these women in Phoenix, Arizona, that when they opened themselves up to conversation and began that process of being in relationship, they could hear what the needs were. And when they could hear what the needs were, they could then say, oh, well, this is what we can do to meet those needs. This is the extent of what I'm, I'm, I'm capable of being able to give, not in a sense of um, guilt or, or, or demands I think sometimes that's what makes people afraid with this stuff is that maybe there's uh, too much that's being hammered or, or, or jammed down people's throats um, or starting with a place of just kind of guilting people into doing act work. That's not at all. It's to say, but if you if you en- enter into genuine relationship, well, then in relationship, you can say, well, what are your needs? And when I can see what your needs are, then I can I can try the best that I can to respond to those needs. Hey, everybody. All right, we're just taking a quick break from this conversation with Father Josh Johnson. I want to encourage you to check us out at faithinmarriage.org. And in a particular way, we have an awesome event coming up on July 30th, 2022. It is our diocesan-wide supper and substance. What that means, it is the greatest date night of the year. We do this awesome date night at the Rock and Bowl in Mid-City Lane. So if you find yourself in New Orleans on July 30th, or it's coming from Baton Rouge or anywhere kind of within driving distance, then come check it out. It's a diocesan-wide event. We have couples from all over coming to participate in just a fun evening where we have bowling, we have live music, and we also have a wonderful presentation by uh, a wonderful couple that's going to be leading that for us. So check us out. If you want more information, then go head on over to faithandmarriage.org. Yeah, a lot of this has to go with discernment, right? And uh, A, being in relationship with God, and B, being in relationship with my community. And so if I'm rooted in prayer, then I'll be able to discern what's the one thing that God's invited me to do. God doesn't want us to do everything. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Mother Teresa said that the devil often will uh, tempt good people this way. The devil tempts good people with many good things so that they try to do every good thing that's presented to them and they could do no good thing well. They can't do the one thing that God called them to do well because they're so all over the place. And so if we're rooted in relationship with God, which again goes back to the very first mandate in um, the gospel for the apostles after they were ordained priests, bishops, at the Last Supper, the very first mandate was sit, watch, and pray. And I honestly think we are living in a time of profound poverty of the interior life. And because yeah. our Catholics aren't praying, they don't know Jesus. And because they don't know Jesus, whenever I might come to their parish to present this conversation, their immediate response is they resist it or they reject it because they see the world through a political lens and not through the lens of Christ and of the gospel and of the lives of the saints who precede us in our walk toward eternity. But if we can begin to root ourselves in the interior life, in a relationship with Jesus by 
actively cultivating uh, daily prayer on the calendar with the Bible, the actual voice of God, and like stop reading all these spirituality books and all these like really nice books that aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit, that aren't without error, that aren't infallible. Like read the Bible, which is the book of God's voice. And when we have time, go and sit in the presence of Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. The fruit of adoration is imitation. And the reason why so many people aren't imitating Christ and crossing cultural boundaries and entering into relationship with people who are radically different from um, them is because we're not spending enough time with Jesus. Uh, so prayer really does transform us but then we also must be invested in loving our neighbor and our neighbor isn't some abstract idea our neighbor is the person who lives in the geographical boundaries of our land god is not entrusting me to to, to africa right now he's not entrusted me to asia or to europe he's entrusted me to the diocese of baton rouge and within the diocese of baton rouge to the people of sacred heart of jesus parish and those geographical boundaries, that's who I must invest my time with. Those people, whether they're Catholic or Protestant, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Hindu or Jew, black, white, Latino, Asian, indigenous, young or old, male or female, those are the people that God wants me to invest in in personal relationships with. And so it's, it's, a, it's a good examination to like, ask the Holy Spirit, like, God, have I ever like walked down my street and gotten to know my neighbors? Um, do, do my neighbors know my political beliefs during political season when I put out my sign before they know that I'm a Christian or a Catholic? Uh, do, do they know that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ or do they know these lesser important things um, first? And so uh, we are being invited to, to, to simply to go out, but fear stops us, right? Fear, fear is of the enemy. And so when we experience that fear, it's important that we relate it to the Lord in prayer so the Lord can can give us the grace because like the, the Lord's love, it casts out all fear. And so I, I experience fear still. And when I experience fear, um, at some point, um, I'm able to, oh, wait, this isn't of God. God would instill this fear into my heart. I, God calls me to to go out. God calls me to imitate the apostles. God wants me to experience the fruit, and and I might get persecuted for this. Uh, I might even become a martyr for this. But the salvation of souls is is worth it. I, but I think too often we allow fear to stop us. It's not just like people who um, are uh, you know Sunday mass going Catholics. I mean these are people who are priests who allow fear to stop them. You look at some of our Catholic churches throughout our nation, and some of our churches are in predominantly black neighborhoods now. Um, and the people who go to Mass there are exclusively white. Um, and so we have to ask the question, have those priests gone up to their neighbors and invited them to the sacramental life of the church? There, there was one priest, uh, I was in adoration one day, and I was praying, and, uh, and a priest came in the chapel and uh, started crying. And so I, I said, hey, man, like, are you okay, right? And I, just to check on him. And he went on to, like, cry to me and lament to me that he was sad because he was being moved to a new parish. And I was like, oh man, I totally get it, right? Uh, anytime I get a new assignment, there's grief because we fall in love with the people of our land. Like we, we are there right. for them for the baptisms and the weddings and the funerals. We're there for them for all their big life moments. And so it's just really difficult to, to go from parish to parish sometimes, from assignment to assignment, from mission to mission. And so I was relating with him until I realized he wasn't sad because he was leaving a group of people. He was sad because of where his superiors were sending him. His superiors were sending him to a, a predominantly black parish. There are no black parishes in our nation. We have predominantly black parishes um, uh, that all people are welcome to. White people can go, Spanish people can go, uh, you know, Latinos, indigenous people, but they are called particular parishes because they're a safe place where black Catholics know they can go where they're not going to experience discrimination uh, because 
what might be um, foreign to some of our listeners is a lot of black people, most, most black Catholics in America go to predominantly white parishes. Like that's, that's the fact. Um, I went to probably a white parish growing up myself. A lot of my family went to probably black parishes, but I went to probably white one. So most black Catholics go to probably white parishes and most black Catholics at probably white parishes have experienced some sort of uh, racial prejudice or discrimination, um, exclusion um, from leaders in their churches. And so that's why in wisdom, the church has particular parishes. We have um, the parish that do the extraordinary form of Latin Mass um, mm-hmm. that anyone can go to. Um, we have uh, parishes that uh, are predominantly Latino, and even if you don't speak Spanish, you can go. We have predominantly Vietnamese parishes, right? So we have these parishes that are, are particular, but they're not exclusive. Um, so what was I just talking about, though? I just lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, the so priest. this priest, yeah, he was being assigned to a predominantly black parish, and he said, I don't want to go there because I don't know black people. He said, they're not going to want me. They're not going to like me. He said, like, I don't pray like them. I don't, I don't, I don't do their music and they're not going to want my preaching. They're not going to, and he had all these. And so I, and let me be very clear. I don't, I don't know this priest like talking about. So I don't, I'm not going to say he was racist because he didn't want to go. I will say that he had racial stereotypes, which are, are beliefs about a group of people that were negative. Um, I would say he, he was racially prejudiced, right? He had ne- negative feelings about a group of people that he had this belief about who he did not know, who he admitted, I don't know black people. Um, and I will say that he racially discriminated against them because he didn't want to share the sacraments with them. I wouldn't go on to say that like if that, that he would support you know racist policies or practices or something like that if he knew that they existed because I don't I don't know that about him. Um, but but unfortunately he allowed these fears that were not coming from the Holy Spirit that were coming from Satan to dictate his actions to dictate his um, joyfully sharing of the sacraments of receiving these people you know. And, 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 I, and I think a lot, of, a lot of people tend to operate that way is, is they see people on the news or read about them in the paper, um, and if they're not in relationship with them, then they believe stereotypes are negative, and stereotypes will lead to prejudiced feelings, and prejudiced feelings will lead to discriminatory actions. Um, and it separates us from being in relationship with people who have these gifts. And so um, I just encourage people, like, hey, like, go yeah, out. I'm just going to stop you real quick. I'm sorry, yeah. because that, that right there is, isn't just racial. I mean, like even now in the wake of everything that's happened with Roe v. Wade, oh my gosh, we're, yeah. we're seeing so much prejudice against Catholic churches, against oh, pro-lifers. Totally. And so we're, it, it, this is, this is why I want to make this point known to the to listeners that like, we have to be careful about who forms our conscience and totally. who forms our thinking about groups that are different than ours. Uh, because if we have negative opinions about other groups, then we're going to, we're going to act on those in some form or fashion, but keep going. Oh, I mean, totally. Yeah, 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 totally. So long story short, we're just called to to, to just go out and encounter people. Um, And that way as we encounter people like Archbishop Hughes did, like Principal Lee did, like the moms in Phoenix did, we could then begin to see, like, first of all, that that they have gifts that we don't have, that they're enriching our lives, we're enriching their lives. But then we could begin to, like, look at the issues and discern communally, like, what are my charisms that I receive at baptism? What are my natural talents? What are my resources? Uh, what do I have that I can use to address this this particular one need, right? What's the one thing that I can do to invest in this community to bring about transformation with the people of that community? Uh, one of the dangers sometimes is sometimes we don't invest in the actual people who live there in those communities, or in our communities, and we just assume that we know what they need, and we try to we try to help without actually asking people like, how can I accompany you? How can I walk with you? And we end up doing more damage than than good. And so it's it just it's just really important that we actually invest in intentional, real relationships. And from those relationships, we see transformation. I want to share about that. Yeah. So so Chris and I, when we were first married, we did uh, two years of missionary work, and uh, during that time, what we did is um, I was to 
the youth minister at the parish. We were in a very rural community in Alabama. And it was there that Alabama, yep. Hertzboro, Alabama. That's where we were at Fort Mitchell. Those those are two communities in, uh, in, in Russell County, I think is what it was that we were still, that we were stationed in. And, um, my wife, she provided uh, social services to the community. And one of the things that she did is that we, we had a number of undocumented workers that came into, into the parish because that's, that was the economy was, you know, um, cutting sod or, or working at the chicken coops and, and all the stuff that, you know, that most of us really don't want to do. You know, that's not, that's the way they say they're taking our jobs. They're not taking anybody's jobs. Those are the jobs that nobody wants to do. Um, and so anyways, the, the, we worked up. So one of the, one of the particular missions that we worked with, one of the particular services we offered was that women who had crossed the, the border pregnant or got pregnant, you know, over, over here with their husbands and, or, or with their boyfriends, but, but still women who were pregnant and, and there was one woman in particular that, that, that we met with who this was her, her fourth child. And she crossed the border while she was pregnant, which was just an incredible story. And, you know, got here and, uh, you know, obviously, so our job was to try to get her to the social services, try to help her to, to, uh, to go to the county health clinic to get, to get, you know, pregnancy care again. And so working with, with this woman, um, what made her remarkable was that she didn't even speak Spanish. She was from a, an indigenous area in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so her, her she spoke Sotzi was a dialect and her husband spoke Spanish and Sotzi. And I spoke Spanish and English. And so the, the way the translation would go is the doctor would communicate to me what needed to happen. I would communicate it to husband in Spanish. And then the husband would communicate it to his wife in Sotzi. Wow. And then, and then this game of telephone would go back, you know, this way. And, um, and, and this woman in particular, like I said, this is her fourth or fifth child. I can't remember truthfully. And, uh, um, she, she, the doctor was telling her that she needed to, you know, lay in the gurney and lay in the back and, you know, she should bird the baby. She had to kind of put her feet up in the stirrups or whatever. And, and she just was like, I'm not comfortable. I'm not used to, you know, giving birth in this position. And, and but I'm trying to be respectful to the doctor and you know what he wants. And, and so nothing was happening. Baby wasn't moving and it was, you know, we we're like 24 hours and nothing, nothing was happening. And so finally the doctor like kind of leaves or whatever. And we're trying to talk to the nurse about it. And so finally at one point we talked to the nurse and, and we're like, listen, this is her fourth child, fifth child, whatever it is. Like, can I just tell her to just get into the positions she's used to, to, to birth this baby. And, uh, and the nurse like, it's fine. Nothing's happening. Just, just do it. Let's just not tell the doctor, you know, right away. And so I was like, okay, no problem. So, so we tell her, say, listen, you know, just do what you normally do. You obviously have done this before. So just do what you need to do. And so immediately she gets off the, 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 you know, the, 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 whatever the, the, the chair, the special birthing chair that they have or whatever gets off and gets on all fours on the ground and starts to just kind of whatever she needs to do in terms of the motions to, to start birthing the baby. And immediately the baby drops and the baby's wow. kind of moving in a position it needs to. The husband's there trying to help her kind of kind of massage the belly and kind of moving the baby in the right direction. And and uh, and so then within a few hours, the kid was born. Um, but all it took was us saying like, what do you need? Wow. <laughs> and what, what, how, do you, how do you normally do this? And because yeah. uh, obviously you've done this before, so so help us understand. And we said, yeah, you have permission to 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 birth the baby as as you feel comfortable doing it. Um, and so that that was the type of work that we did was really just kind of at the the lowest level, you know, material level, helping people, being able to just have access to to healthcare. So we wanted this. We would rather obviously this child and her to 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 birth this baby in a hospital that's sterile and clean rather than her trailer where she was living with seven other yeah. people, you know? Mm. And so like, and, and that was probably 45 minutes away from good healthcare if something were to happen to her. 
And so then that would have been even more of a risk. And so, so we were trying the best we can to give her resources that she needs um, to be able to, to, to have the baby. And, uh, and she did. And we have, you know, I have three or four other stories like that, you know, where, where we helped these women throughout the year, well, a couple of years that we were there. That's beautiful. Um, wow. Wow. And, and, and so like, I guess my point is that, you know, going back to the, the, the priest that you're speaking about, um, that sometimes the fear is, is, as you said, it's, it's, it, 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 it is a misunderstanding. And, and if he was being assigned there, then, well, I guess like, how did the story end? I mean, what did, what, I know you read about it in the book, but, uh, but, but no, I'll, well, I'll give just, you opportunity to share, to share that. Well, I don't, I, you know, I don't know how this story ultimately ends, but I, I know that in that moment I was able to just encourage him to believe that God like speaks to us to our superiors. And so he had gifts that would help that community grow in their relationship with the Lord and become saints. And that community had gifts that would help him to be purified and be reformed and become the saint that God wanted him to be. And so it's just important that we recognize that the obedience is the key to holiness. And so um, I, I did reach out to Archbishop Fob, who is the Archbishop of Louisville, and he's a friend of mine. And, I, um, and whenever I was assigned to a probably white parish, um, and that that had a not so good history with racism. The the Bionites of the KKK were active in the 21st century again, like and and they were Catholic too. Uh, so a lot of times people are like, oh, the KKK they hated Catholics. I'm like, yes, some did, <laughs> and some Catholics were the KKK. So like, let's not play this game that like we're all whatever. But um, I remember when I heard the just the history of the town I was going to, I was excited to go make disciples. But a lot of my peers, uh, white and black, were were really uncomfortable. And encouraged me and I go and I said to him, I said, if I if I wouldn't go to this community, I'd be doing with that with that white priest at that black parish. I'd be judging an entire community on one small group of people um, that uh, weren't doing things that were in alignment with the church. And so I reached out to Archbishop Five and he said, Josh, he said, you're right. He said, it, it doesn't matter whether or not uh, a community will accept you wherever you go. It's about whether or not you will accept them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's, I guess, a message for all of us people are going to reject us. Jesus said in the Bible, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to, you're going to be crucified, right? If they persecute me, they will persecute you. When we go out to do this very difficult work, it's going to be misunderstood and we're going to make mistakes. But even when we do everything right, because it's a spiritual battle, um, we're going to be uh, attacked and, and that's okay. It's all for salvation of souls. And so st- Stop looking at the world through politics and through mm-hmm. ideology mm-hmm. and begin to examine our society and begin to examine our culture through the lens of the gospel and the teachings of Holy Mother Church that are extremely clear. The, the church's documents from like Pope Paul VI through John Paul II, Pope Benedict, um, uh, John Paul I was only there for a month, but and then even now Francis is very clear like as baptized faithful, every single one of us. Like our vocation, it says in the documents of the church, our vocation is to evangelize. Even if you don't have the charism of evangelization, our evangelism, we are all called to, whether we're lay people, priests, or religious, we're all called to evangelize. We're all called to share the good news. We're all called to be disciples. And a a brief definition of a disciple is to imitate Christ. (laughs) We're all called to be imitators of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. um, to to, to walk in his dust, to to examine his life and to do everything that he did in communion and union with him today because we are the body of Christ today. And and so it's just, this is an invitation. So that's, that was the point of the book, Mario, is that it's not happening right now. Like when I go and talk to some of the greatest missionary organizations in our nation, when I go and talk to some of the, the, the most on fire disciples and groups and, and even religious orders, 
these are like these organizations and these missionary institutes and these religious orders um, and even these di- these dioceses where the priests invite me in or whatever um, talk to the priest uh, like these are people who are doing the work and they're they're saying they're admitting we don't know how to do this well like we we know that we're we're clearly not doing something right so these are like the orthodox Catholics who are who are trying to be saints and who are trying to form saints and they're admitting it. And so if they're admitting it, then I think that all of us need to say, wait a minute. So the people that do a holy hour every day and the people that fast on Fridays and the people that are getting theology degrees and being formed as missionaries, they're admitting that something's not working. So that's why I wrote the book, because something's not working right now in the church. And I think that the Holy Spirit inspired me with not the silver bullet, but with a model that can work, um, that has worked, um, and that I believe can work in, in other people's religious orders and other dioceses and other parishes and other communities and other missionary organizations um, to just in, in help people understand the history of like real racism um, and to help people to go out. You know, I think that too often, too often, too often, we are allowing just the narrative on the news and uh, conversations about different theories and different movements uh, to prevent us from being invested in what the church actually teaches. Uh, for instance, the other day, I, um, I invited Catholics on the, on the Solemnity of Corpus Christi a simple invitation. I said, "Hey, it's the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ. I want to invite uh, people to do a holy hour um, of reparation um, for the sins that were committed against slaves in America. Because this year the feast of Corpus Christi was on Juneteenth, right? And so um, that was just a simple invitation to, to to do something that is orthodox and that is Catholic and whatever. And you would not believe the amount of hate I got from Catholics, um, the DMs, the and the comments from people saying." that I was a communist and I was a woke priest and I was a Marxist and that I was disrespecting the Eucharist. And I'm like, now, I've invited people to do reparation for, for sins against the Eucharist. I've invited people to do offer reparation for sins uh, that priests have committed in the, in the clergy abuse scandal against the, the late faithful and against seminarians. Um, I've invited people to come to my first Saturday Mass that Our Lady of Fatima requested of the church through Sister Lucia um, in reparation for sins committed against uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and, and her Immaculate Heart. Uh, and I've never got any pushback. I've, oh, yeah, we needed reparation for that. We needed reparation for the sins of priests. We needed reparation for sins against the Blessed Sacrament. But you bring up sins against black people in this country, sins of racism, and the immediate thing is you're liberal, and, and I'm not even a Democrat or Republican. That's a different conversation. I think both parties are very corrupt and anti-Christ and anti-gospel, so shout out to everybody who's listening who's Republican and Democrat. You can stay in those parties if you want and reform from within, but don't think your parties are, are Catholic, because um, uh, I'm neither. And so, uh, but yeah, it was the amount of hate, and I'm like, wow, like, this is so interesting. So I, I would even like, Every now and then I, I entertain people. I feel inspired by the spirits, like and, and instruct people in the church's teachings. And I'll, I'll show people that like, this is what the catechism says. Like, did you know every priest does reparation for people when you come to confession to us? Like, I offer penances for your sins. I never committed them. Um, did you know that this is what Our Lady of Fatima asked? Did you know this is what the church actually teaches about reparation? This is a Catholic teaching, and it's rooted not only in our history, but it's also rooted in the gospel and in and the Old Testament as well. Anyways, um, that we're supposed to make it right. We're supposed to offer penances, not only for our stuff, but for other people. Hence, our whole teaching on purgatory. Um, <laughs> and, and our prayers and our penances, they, they do affect um, the they're timeless because God's inside of time. So they can affect the present moment. They can affect things that happen in the past and the future. Um, hence, Our Lady of Fatima asked the kids, Jacinta Lucia and Francisco, to pray for John Paul II before he was even born. She asked him to pray and offer penances um, for him in 1917. He wasn't born until 1919. He wasn't shot until 1981. Um, but their prayers and penances were timeless. You know, So the Lord, uh, he can allow 
our stuff to affect right, all generations. Like, so that our people are in purgatory. So if you don't want your, your loved ones to get out of purgatory, then, then stop doing penances. But no, we do penances for them. But when it comes to certain things, we're like, no, because that's a, because, 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 because people, liberals use that word reparation. So I'm, I'm anti that now. Yep. Um, or, or whatever. I'm like, no, like this is, this is all our church is teaching. Like quit making politics um, your focus, make the gospel the focus. That, amen. Amen. Because it, that, I mean, and I think that really is the issue is that um, it's been, it's been misconstrued. It's been hijacked by the political system. And listen, I've sat through some of these racial diversity trainings and, uh, and I'll be the first to tell you that, that like there's an agenda behind some mm-hmm. of them. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is really, really bad. You know? Yeah. And it gives, and it gives, and so it, it gives fodder fuel to, to the conservatives to say, well, look at just what they're saying, you know? And I'm like, it, it just because they may be nuts, <laughs> you know, some aspects of this, it doesn't mean that the call, what we're speaking about, isn't still our responsibility. Like even if people are misconstruing or taking advantage of, of, of this now and, and hammering a system that is, you know, whatever, then, then that doesn't mean that we still don't have a better way to respond. And what does St. Thomas Aquinas do? What does St. Dominic do? Like, they, they, the saints give us the model, Mario. So St. Uh, St. Dominic, during his lifetime, the Cathar heretics were were stealing so many people away from the church. People were, were leaving the church. Now, again, in this time, there's scandals that were happening. Priests were living luxurious lifestyles. Um, but then these Cathar heretics, they live this radically simple lifestyle, very ascetical. But they're using the writings of Aristotle. And they're using his writings to, writings to steal people away from the, from the church. And all these Catholics are, like, leaving the church in numbers. At that time, the, the hierarchy in the church was afraid of Aristotle's writings because they were pagan. They weren't, they weren't mm-hmm. like, written by a Catholic saint. Uh, they weren't totally inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Catholics were forbidden to read some of these writings. So St. Dominic, uh, uh, he approaches the Holy Father, like, can we please read these writings? Like, we need to, to, to get the, the best scholars to, like, like, look into these writings to see what is it about Aristotle's writings that's, like, inspiring so many people to leave the church. Um, this, uh, this, this, pagan, this pagan theory here. And so when he began to read his writing, again, and Dominic was living an ascetical lifestyle and all that, so he's already attractive in a sense more than other people in the church at that time. But once he read the writings, he's like, oh, my gosh, like, there are, are things in these writings that I can, I can actually use to draw people back to the church. It's not all bad. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so he began to use Aristotle's writings to bring people back to the faith. Well, then Thomas Aquinas takes it a step further, and he's like, I think that we—I think there's something special about Aristotle's writings. I think we can use his writings to articulate uh, our theology— uh, matter and form, substance and accidents, all this comes from a pagan philosopher, Aristotle, who, again, some of his writings were bad. They were dangerous. They were not good. Um, but because these great saints who preceded us in our walk toward eternity, they invested time into this pagan theory, into this, this, this pagan writing, they were able to then use it to benefit the church universal. And so the same thing would apply when we go to diversity, um, equity, inclusion trainings, or if you look at the writings of um, some of the critical race theorists, or if you look at certain movements that are very popular now, you can either say, I'm going to just say all that is bad. It's all bad. None of it's good. Let's stay away from it. Or we can be mature about it and we can say, well, let's invest into this. Let's read it. Let's pray with it. And, and let's see what is good here. What can we actually learn from this? What can we use to build the kingdom of God? And then what can we 
I honestly say we need to reject and we need to throw out because it is absolutely dangerous, anti-gospel and anti-Christ. The only way we could do that is if we are investing our time into it and, and, and doing what the saints did before us. That's what the saints did. I mean, the saints always examined everything. They ever said, okay, this is good. This is not so good. I mean, it's in the Bible with the Gentiles. Like when the apostles went out to the Gentiles, they'd examine, okay, like, you could do this. You don't have to be circumcised like the Jews. You got to stop sleeping with your sister and your brother. Like, that's not cool. Uh, but, you, but, you, but actually, we can keep it because they were doing that. Like some of the people, it was in their culture. So you have to like really invest in it and see, okay, this is good. This is not so good. This we can keep. This we need to throw away. Uh, and, and, and the great saints have done this before us. And if, if we could do it today, then I think we'll begin to see a lot of transformation um, in our culture, in society. The church is not supposed to be these little holy places that, that are just holy on our street where the building of the church is. The church is supposed to go out and transform everything, you know, uh, and the church ain't doing it right now. Well, amen. Amen. All right. So, so we are. I don't even know how long we've been talking. About an hour and 10 minutes. So this is like a bit long interview. Okay. Well, (laughs) I want to take a few more minutes of your time if you can. So I got a couple questions. All right. I want to ask. First is put to rest something for me. Okay. Because often let's go to the other side of the spectrum, of the political spectrum. People will then say, and I hear this in in these critical race theory. I can't speak enough about critical race theory, but in some of these diversity inclusion training courses that I've, that I've participated in because as a therapist, I have to do all this stuff. Um, one of the comments that will be used often is in against the faith as a model of inclusion, because people will say, well, the Bible has been used as a way of, of upholding slavery or look at the Bible, the Bible condones slavery. Um, so let's flip the political sp- script here. What would you say to, to those groups and how, how do we respond to that? Um, I think that they're, they're mis- have people use the Bible to promote slavery in America. Yeah, yeah people have, uh, but that doesn't mean that the, the Bible was justifying chattel slavery in, in America. In the, in the Bible, slavery, it wasn't chattel. Slavery was for people, say, if I, if I owed you something, then I was your slave, but I could always work myself out of slavery. I'm sorry, what um, was the word you're using? Chattel. So chattel slavery was American slavery. That's, that's the slavery here black people experienced. It was the law of the land that you were slave for life. Um, for no other reason than because of the color of your skin. That's a different slavery than slavery of, I owe you something, right? I work for you, and I once I'm done working for you, I can pay my way out of being your slave, which essentially is being a servant. That's what slaves were in the Bible. They were servants of people because they owed them something. They weren't slaves because, well, and then uh, that's like, but that's the New Testament. There were slaves in Egypt. The Israelites were slaves, and the Bible never condoned that. God freed those people from that kind of slavery because they were slaves um, because of their it being Israelites. So, but there are people often who will use Scripture um, to to draw people away from the church. Does that mean that the Bible uh, is wrong? No, that means that the person who's interpreting the lens of the Bible is misinterpreting it, using it for their own agenda. And so we can do this with any church teaching. Uh, there are there's a movement right now of of like uber traditional Catholics um, who are reading some church documents right now, and they're reading into those church documents. Oh well, women can't work, and women uh, they have to if their husband says jump, they need to jump. Women can't do this. Women can't do that because they're misinterpreting what the Holy Father meant whenever he wrote some of those inspired documents of the church. And so people oftentimes will misinterpret and use for their own agenda all the time, uh, the Bible or any church document for that matter. Amen. Good answer. I wanted to give you space to, to be able to do that because you're, you're right. And that's that's why we appeal again back to a magisterium, to a, to a deposit of faith, to 
not being so quick to um, come to conclusions, but but being open to letting our conscience and our mind to be formed in light of the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, and this is why the walk of faith is is difficult, and the walk of faith takes courage and it takes time for th- for certain ideas to mature and to percolate within us. And uh, and that's when you talk about a crisis of conscience or a crisis of intentionality. I think was what you said earlier. And I think some of that is because, unfortunately, in our social media age, oh, um, we're, we're 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 so quick to to jump on things. You know, we're so quick to to follow a fad or or to s- comment on something that's trending. And and we're seeing the st- the studies are showing that we've become more and more polarized um, over the last fifteen years. You know, since this stuff has become popular. And uh, what's changed in that time? Is it that we're different as people? No, it's just that we're we're becoming more segregated politically in our ideology because because the, these devices um, encourage a certain certain comments or certain things to to emerge or or it it, pre, it it predicts what type of feeds you would want to enjoy, and so it's feeding oh, yeah, kind of what you're looking for. Yeah. What was that? The algorithms are terrible. Yeah, <laughs> they are. They are. And so, so even something like simple as, as Twitter, you know, you can go on Twitter and you can, you can change your, your feed to, to be like, what does it want you basically like your preferences for you kind of the, for you, or just, just put up whatever, you know, whatever's happening. And if you do that, if you make that toggle on your, on your Twitter account, uh, you'll see two very, very different feeds two very, yeah. very different feeds. Um, so, so one, okay. So being, being mindful of, okay, like, we have to be open to the church's teachings. We have to be open to, to, the, to the Holy Spirit guiding us. We have to be open to saying, okay, I may have opinions politically about certain things or may have desires about how things should happen politically. Okay. But at the same time, like we can, we can advocate for that and we need to, of course, advocate and we need to still meet people where they are and helping people. So, and I need to be open to my politics being wrong. I need to be open to the Holy Spirit and the church, te- the church teaching saying, actually, like, this isn't good. And so like, we have to have this posture of humility of, of, of saying, my politics might not be in alignment with the gospel. And I'm not saying the whole political party, I'm just saying, but like there are certain aspects of it that might not be good. And so we're always in constant reformation. All the saints who preceded us, they knew that they weren't perfect and that they were in constant need of being reformed by the Lord. And as people, we need to be reformed. And then even our organizations that we established, no matter how good our intentions were when we tried to to, to form them, they're not going to be perfect because we're not infallible when we do things. And so we, we're always in constant need of examination of, is this bearing supernatural fruit? Is this really of the Lord? Um, or are there areas where I need to continue to be purified or where my party or my business or institution or apostolate or organization needs to be purified so that it can, it can be in alignment with, with the Lord. Amen. Amen. And that's a disposition that we're all supposed to take in, all in the our time. hearts, like I said, all the time. It's the constant reformation, constant recognition. Now it doesn't mean we doesn't mean we continue to obliterate. We don't we don't we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's yeah. it's building. It's building and saying, okay, and discerning, okay, where am I called to in this particular moment? What are what are the gifts and challenges that I have and how can I how can I be more? Uh in and of course broadly, but speaking here specifically about the, the question of racial harmony, what more can I do specifically? And it doesn't require me to go on a mission trip to Africa. It doesn't require me to go on a mission trip to Central America. It, it may just mean that, you know, hey, there might be neighbors that I have uh, down the street that are mm-hmm. of different skin color than mine. And, uh, you know, maybe I just need to be a little more intentional about like, you know, just kind of knocking on the door and saying, hey, uh, how are you guys doing? Or, or yeah. uh, you know, just even in conversation, being polite with one another and rather than just ignoring them. Host a you Bible know. study, right? Host a Bible so, study. Yeah, exactly. some of our, of our greatest friendships are, are rooted in the in the Lord. And so host a Bible study that's intentionally diverse, like make it diverse, like look at your boundaries and see who's there 
and see who's not there at your Bible study, and then who's not there, go out and invite those people to come. And if you have to accommodate the Bible study by changing the time so they can go to it, then accommodate it because it's worth it. Yeah. So look, just to, as we're kind of bringing this down, you know, because we have obviously so much more stuff we can talk about, but what other models? You said you, said you have a model. So what do you propose as ways yeah, so of being I, able to move forward with this? You've I, talked I, about I propose, Bible studies. You've talked yeah. about, you know, having, uh, changing pictures, not p- changing pictures, making sure icons are, and that's one of the things I appreciate at, at Holy Rosary where you were before, you know, you made, you were very intentional making sure that the images of the saints were, were diverse and that they yeah, were that, everywhere that looked also. Like heaven. Yeah. yeah so I, the, the three things would be to, to pray, to learn and to act. And so, uh, the first thing is first is, is prayer. That's the that's the first mandate in the gospel. It's the first mandate for this mission because the mission is the same today as it was yesterday. So invest in prayer. That way we are in alignment with God's heart. Um, so focus on the word of God by committing to the time every day before the Blessed Sacrament, if we can, but definitely with the word of God every single day by going to mass, by worshiping at different uh, particular churches, right? So um, that, like, so if you go to the Novus Ordo liturgy all the time in English, um, then go to the Novus Ordo in Latin, or go to an extraordinary form of Latin every now and then. Like, go to a different parish. If you go to a predominantly white parish, then find a predominantly Latino parish, or predominantly black parish, or predominantly Vietnamese parish, and don't just like stop in like once a year, but like maybe like once a month. Like, go and visit these communities to to invest in them, to get to know them where where they're at. Um, and, and stuff like that. Um, but, but prayer, prayer, do, do prayers of reparation, right? So pray your liturgy hours and offer it up for sins that were committed against the Eucharist, sins that are committed against the heart of Mary, and then sins, sins of racism, whether or not you've ever said the N-word or your family's ever owned a slave, as members of the body of Christ, we're all responsible for caring about every single person who's ever existed in salvation history, and so we can all offer up prayers and penances, not only for our stuff, but for other people who might be in purgatory because of their sins they committed 100 years ago, and like they're like waiting for somebody to please, please pray for me because I'm still in purgatory. <laughs> so uh, pray your rosaries and offer your holy hours and masses for, for those things. Uh, after you pray, learn. Uh, learn what you don't know. Like, like, there's so many things I've learned over the years uh, from in, investing in, in stuff that I never learned in seminary. Like, seminary had great formation, but there I never I I learned more outside of seminary than I learned in seminary when it comes to the topic of discipleship, evangelization, and the real history of, of racism um, and in America and the church's participation in it, the bishops' participation, religious orders. They had slaves. Our first bishop had slaves. They didn't allow black people to be, to be priests and sisters. We couldn't go to seminaries in this country um, and there's so much history that we're just not taught that I think we need to take time to learn the actual history of how things were and then also how things what is actually happening today and so there are things written by the USCCB um, on racism there's books on the history of racism in this country history of black Catholics in this country there's books like my book that will maybe inform a lot of readers that have have read it have told me man I, there's so much I just didn't know that actually happened and it's and it's happening today that I learned and I, I read your book because I trust you as an author I know you're an orthodox Catholic so I, I knew I wasn't reading some sketchy theologians so um, so read other works that you don't know go visit the Equal Justice Initiative Museum in Montgomery Alabama it shows the story of slavery through reconstruction through Jim Crow through the current prison system today um go visit the whitney plantation in edgar louisiana it gives the story of the slave i mean how many times do we i visited poland uh on a pilgrimage uh, a few years ago with jeff cavins and we visited maximilian kobe shrine jean paul ii shrine and Teresa uh, uh edith stein like right all those beautiful places divine mercy it was so powerful when we got to the concentration camp it was somber and it was so reverent and everyone was like, how could this happen? And this is so terrible. And every, everybody was so prayerful. But I was just struck by, 
you know, being in Louisiana, we have so many plantations that I call slave labor camps where black people were hung and raped and tortured and their families were separated and they were slaves and they were beaten on a daily basis and treated in very inhumane ways. And people host parties at plantations and have weddings at plantations and, and don't even pray for the sins that happened on that land. Don't even offer up um, any kind of like uh, penance for, for the terrible things that happened there. And so I just encourage people like visit the Whitney Plantation because it actually tells the story of the slavery experience. And then if you do go to another plantation for a wedding or a photo shoot or a party, um, then at least pray while you're there as well, right? Pray. You don't know what kind of like demons are still present on that land because of the mortal sins that happened there. The demons that were invited because of all the molestation that happened on that land. Um, in addition to learning um, uh, and praying, I invite people to act, right? So act by facilitating small group Bible studies um, that are intentionally diverse, to act by um, tithing to missionary organizations and to religious orders that that uh, serve communities that are under-resourced, that, that are uh, that are not financed well in our dioceses. So you have the Holy Family Sisters, you have the Josephites of the Sacred Heart, you have Vagabond Missions. There are numbers of organizations, institutions, and religious orders that are doing the work. So financially, like, put your money there. If you're going to spend $5,000 to go on a mission trip that's one week long, then you can, you can find some money to support work that's happening in your land, in your diocese, in your parish uh, communities, potentially, right? Um, again, address the artwork, right? Uh, that is a huge thing. People, people pilgrimage to Holy Rosary when I was there um, to see the artwork, to see themselves represented in the saints. And some people have been joined the parish because they, they, like, they said, wow, I'm represented here. This is a gift. Um, so I, I would encourage you, put your money where your mouth is. If you want to make disciples, then you got to do that. E examine, again, the, the history books that are being taught in, in your schools, in your Catholic schools, um, in your PSR programs. Make sure that they're not lying. There are some homeschool programs that I've, I've read some of the books that they're reading, and the books are trash. The books are not telling the real story of, of America, of the church in America. And so it's forming a generation to believe that, that everything has been great in this country for all people, and that's just not reality. And so make sure that the, the, the sources that you're using are telling the real story so that we can uh, know what's really going on. Um, I mean, if you have parish missions and retreats, you can uh, obviously um, include uh, people of color whenever you discern who should be preaching on evangelization, discipleship, and catechesis in your parish. Um, and, and then also get involved in, in protest, right? One of the, uh, the greatest evils that, that's happened in our nation uh, has been Roe v. Wade. And I know I've protested at the Marsh Flight for years. I pray mm -hmm. the rosary outside of abortion clinics. Um, I have okay. invested money into Women's and Life Centers. And so get involved in protests that are affecting all people. So still march for life in, in, in places and spaces that are harming the unborn, but also march for, uh, against police brutality where that's happening, march against other things that are happening in your community and don't just march against one thing, but like the, the, the saints, they participated in protests and you can, you can read about in their lives. And so there are, sometimes people say, oh, but the protests are all violent. I'm like, well, I've done a lot of protests, uh, again, against abortion, against racism, and not one protest that I participated in was, was violent. So the media might highlight uh, the few that get violent, but, but that's not the majority. And so, so, so you get plugged in. And so I think if we do those things of praying and um, learning and acting and discerning, God, how you invite me to pray? God, what, what do you want me to study right now? 
and, and what's the one action you want me to get plugged into, then we'll begin to, to, to see little, little transformations happen in our community. We'll cultivate the, the uh, civilization of love. We'll console the heart of Jesus. We'll build the kingdom of God, and we'll bring about unity in the body of Christ on earth as it is in heaven because um, our, our works will foster discipleship of every race, nation, tribe, and tongue. And so, Yeah, I think it's worth simple. repeating that the point that you're making here is to start small and to start with what's immediate. And, yeah. and to, to, to not just start, but just to start with prayer and to really pray and ask the Lord, like, okay, well, what are you asking of me? Where are you calling yeah. me to do? The quote that you said earlier about Mother Teresa and how the devil will want to tempt us by giving us too many good things yeah, that totally. we distract us from the one great thing that God's asking us to do. I think that's the key because when we step into any social issue, whether it's abortion or racism um, or a, a, any social issue, we can often feel very overwhelmed by the, no, totally. the gravity oh, of it and, yeah. and the the size of it and the scope of it that we feel like, well, my little contributions don't really matter, aren't going to really offer much. And, um, and, and that's just not the case. And so we want to just encourage people to say, okay, start small, start immediate, start with prayer and then, uh, and then kind of go from there. So, yeah. all right, father Josh, final word. What do you got? How do you want to wrap this thing up for us? Well, you can find the book on essentialpresscom slash on earth or on amazon.com as well. And I just want to encourage everybody, uh, fall in love with Jesus. And when we fall in love with Jesus Christ, uh, then we will care about what he cares about. And what Jesus Christ cares about is unity in the body of Christ on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus cares about is that all people are invited to become disciples, that all people are invited to the sacraments life of the church. And uh, so do not let fear prevent you from fulfilling the demands of discipleship and from putting a smile on the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Beautiful way to wrap it up. Thanks, man, for joining me on the show. Always a gift. Appreciate it. Your gift. <laughs> Your gift. All right, everybody. That does it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to it all the way through. Again, this is a hard conversation because so much of it kind of gets skewed within our political lens. And we just want to be open to seeing how God is inviting each and every single one of us to be able to take steps forward towards racial harmony. And that doesn't mean doing anything crazy by going to, you know, missions to different places. And if God's calling you to that, then praise the Lord and let him be calling you to that. But if God's calling to evangelize and to create discipleship just within your own communities, then just be open to that and seeing what are the ways that you can be able to be more welcoming to your neighbors, even if they're coming from a different cultural background than yourself. So... Thanks, everybody, for listening to this conversation. Check out Father Josh's book. It's excellent. And we'll catch you in the next episode. God bless.